0: This is Millennially Speaking, a podcast about politics, pop culture, and everything in between. I'm David Latimer, and Sherelle Boyer is actually off this week. She is now a college graduate, so she gets a well-earned and a well-deserved break, uh, but the show must go on. So here I am, me, myself, and I. So what I wanted to talk about first is abortion. It's not something—okay, I don't want to get too deep into the— The politics of it or personal opinions, Um, but there are current legislative efforts in several states to ban abortion. So one of the first was Alabama this past week. They signed what was a pretty restrictive ban on abortion across the state. Um, This bill is being called the heartbeat bill. Basically, it would ban abortions after a fetal heartbeat is detected, which in most cases can be as early as six weeks after uh, conception. So there's also, in, in Alabama's case, there are no exceptions for an abortion based on either rape or incest. So even in the most sort of liberal conservative you know back and forth there's tends to be sometimes a little bit of leeway when it comes to rape or incest this one does not allow that now there's another story that's coming out that Missouri is looking to pass an abortion ban for after 8 weeks um and that's that bill is HB 126 my personal stance because to to put it all out there and and to be fair i personally you know i Speaking as a man, as I probably should not, but I will. um, I personally would not be okay with an abortion in a case that is personal to me. Whether it's, you know, my wife or someone getting an abortion or a family member. It's not something that I would be um, encouraging or something like that. But I also sort of take the, and I I don't like to bring her into this, but the Tommy Laren. Um, approach which is as someone who leans more conservative my idea is that the government should remain out of certain things um, and we should have as limited government as possible because when you get more government interaction you have to keep legislating because otherwise people will stomp all over and find loopholes so in this particular case I feel as though the government should stay out of abortion now what they're saying is oh, well, in in the case of when, when Roe v. Wade was um, decided that, oh, well, now it's just encouraging women to have abortions and we don't want to encourage our women to have abortions and things like that. Well, I don't think anyone is encouraging women to have abortions. I don't think that's the case. I don't think it's that women are now all of a sudden just killing off all of their babies. I think that's that's a bad faith argument. That's just saying that, you know, we clearly we don't we, we love women um, and we're, we're telling them to kill their babies. And, and that's that's not correct. That's a bit like I said, it's a bad faith argument. And that's trying to, to I don't know, to, to me, abortion is something that the government should remain out of. Um, but like I said, on a personal level, it's something that I wouldn't encourage and I wouldn't be in favor of. But as I've, I think I've said previously on this show. And if not, here's here's my take on it. My religious beliefs and my personal convictions do not mean that I believe the rest of the country and the rest of society has to follow it, nor do I expect them to. You know, as a Christian, um, I'm told to, you know, speak the gospel and, 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 you know, tell the truth to people. But I also can't, you know... It, I, it's not up to me and it's not, you know, anything that I can do that can save people or, or things like that. It's a higher power that could, um, you know, feel feel as though you, you're now convicted um, and um, you have a conviction of not wanting to get an abortion. I can't, you know, make you have those feelings, especially you get cases where people will... Um, present misinformation in whatever effort it takes to prevent an abortion. you know, people lying and saying, well, you know it's it's medically unsafe and there's, you know, a lot of times they're they're pulling pieces and parts and babies and, and things and that at after the six week then the baby can feel it and things like that. It's I don't think it's really fair to be making these kinds of arguments to scare people in an effort to get what you want. You know, I said last week, I hate how we're in sort of these two camps of, if you're this particular political belief, you believe this. And if you're this particular political belief, you must believe this. I don't think that anyone, or at least most people, are so polarized like that. I feel like we have a lot more nuance, or we should have a lot more nuance, than than we're being given credit for. Um, and that... You can have a personal belief, but that doesn't mean it has to translate to everyone else, and especially in legislative efforts. I feel like that's very unfair. I feel like that's very um, un-American to try to, and, and like Tommy Lahren has said, it's it's getting the government involved in places where it really doesn't belong. And I, I just find that totally un unrepublican I think it's a very un-Republican stance to take, and very un uh, conservative-like, and basically the ultimate goal here, you're you're gonna, I believe, see a lot more states start to challenge and and get these sort of new abortion bans going because I feel as though a lot of these states are now trying to challenge the Roe v. Wade decision. Um, what may end up happening is a lot of these new state bans on abortion aren't set to take effect for several months or or even up to a year, um, and they're hoping or People are saying that they're hoping that it gets a challenge by the Supreme Court and that potentially because Trump has tipped the scale in a conservative leaning that potentially you could get, uh, you know, a rearguing of Roe v. Wade and potentially overturn it. And to see something like that flip so far backwards, it's I mean, I would say it's surprising, but it's not. But it just feels like. I hate or or I very much dislike when Supreme Court decisions or or certain Supreme Court decisions keep getting revisited over and over again or we keep having a debate. If a Supreme Court decides something, in most cases, I feel as though it should just remain decided, you know, especially with something like this, where it's a very um, socially liberal position to go, you know, all these years later in 2019 and try to turn back the clock and reverse the decision feels very counterproductive and feels very backwards from the way that society is moving. Of course, life has value. Of course, we need to protect children. Of course, we need to, you know, you know, not be having abortions left and right and oh, just because I don't feel like having a kid. But that's not my place to decide whether that's appropriate for someone. That's between them their healthcare provider, and if it so convicts them, between them and God, honestly. And it's not my place to tell them what God is telling them. I I would never say that what I'm being told is what you are being told by God, because that is not how that works either. You know, it's a very sensitive subject talking about abortion, but I am doing it in the most sensitive way that I can to, to both sides of my, of my argument as a a conservative and a Christian, but also as a man trying not to um, speak for women. So all I would say is, let's continue to have a discussion, but let's not start, you know, separating into our own camps and 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 let's see where people are coming from. It's not fair to have christians and and conservatives. Constantly say, well, it's just because they're, you know, it's infanticide and they want to kill babies and they just are obsessed with killing babies. That's another bad faith argument. It's not that they're obsessed with killing babies. They clearly have a a reason for supporting abortion that is not just because they're obsessed with killing children. Okay, the the idea is that they're trying to have these safe, um, legal and or at least the the old mantra was safe, legal and rare is to have these kinds of medical procedures without government intrusion. And that's what is happening, is that there's government intrusion here, and it's undeserved. I, I just feel like there's a lot more nuance to arguments, and it's really not okay for conservatives to make these bad-faith arguments and, and to not just understand where people are coming from. So the next thing I want to talk about, this is going to be, of course, because I'm by myself, this is going to be more of a rant. This past week... Since um, I did mention that Sherelle uh, just graduated from college, uh, I went out to dinner with her family. Her family currently lives in Georgia, but they came back up here to New Jersey for her graduation. And this is something that had sort of been in my head for a little bit, um, but I wanted to sort of ask them because they were interested in, in politics and, and talking about the podcast. So I said, here's a topic I wanted to bring up. I recently saw a clip from a an argument that was... Held on the View of all places, and it was a clip of a young girl or, or a young woman. She was maybe in her twenties, speaking to Maya Angelou, Dr. Maya Angelou, in a sort of a a lecture session. She was given some sort of talk about maybe her book or something like that. And she had sort and sort of a, a slip. Um, the young woman said, "I wanted to ask Maya a question," uh, and. Dr. Angelou sort of stopped her and she said, well, first of all, it's Dr. Angelou, and she went into this whole, like, spiel about, you know, I've worked hard and I deserve to be called that title and by a young person and basically this whole sort of, you know, this mantra of of saying I deserve to be spoken to and and referred to by this particular title. So I, like I said, I was having this discussion with uh, Shirelle's family, and her mom and most of her family sort of fit in that same uh, camp and that same... You know, if you're a younger person talking to an elder or someone, you know, an, an, a, an older adult that you're supposed to refer to them as Mr. Or Mrs. Doctor or something like that, I'm going to play devil's advocate. Okay, so as someone who is in their early 20s, I find it very difficult sometimes to lead and speak and and do things with older adults. People you know, that could be my parents age or even older. I am a Christian. I've, I've made that clear. And I understand the idea of respecting elders and honor thy father and mother and, and things like that. So I I have a a place where I'm coming from there, but I also have this mindset of, you know, in, in my environment, I currently, I work at, you know, I work in retail and I'm a, a, a regular employee. Um, and I also work alongside as you do in retail with people that are, you know, much older than you or around your age and things like that. And I call them by their first name because that's, that's, it's on their name tag. They are my peer in that particular setting. uh, And that's what feels most comfortable to them, to me. Uh, And it just, it made me pause and sort of think in certain situations when I'm sort of leading and I'm, you know, in charge, when I'm expected to, speak to someone who just happens to be older than me as Mr. Mrs., then they can call me by just my first name, I feel like it adds to this idea of disrespecting young people just because they're young. Not to bring her into this, but Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She is constantly berated on Fox News and spoken down to not just because of her policy positions, but... In some cases, I've heard several audio clips of hosts from the shows saying, you know, it sounds like this is something that was written for a high school paper and, and, you know, she should go back to school and things very like belittling, berating, very obvious that it's about her age. And it's very obvious that it's about who she is personally rather than just her policies, because that's sort of when you back into your corners of your, your political beliefs, you sort of you start going at, you know, a little below the belt. So I just, I, it made me think, I want to be respected as an adult. And when I'm speaking with an adult who is in sort of a peer situation, when you revert to um, calling them Mr., Mrs., Doctor, well, I'll, I'll leave Doctor aside because that's a that's a totally different uh, animal right there. But Mr., Mrs., Miss feels like I, as a younger person, still an adult, but as a younger person, it instantly makes me feel infantile and it instantly makes me feel like I am lesser and I don't deserve to have any kind of authority or any kind of, you know, even if I'm not above them, even if we're just at the same level, it makes me feel lesser and feel like I have less ability to speak and less ability to have an intellectual conversation with them or just just to be able to speak with them on a similar level. It makes me, it reverts me back to being a child. Now, again, like I said, I understand the idea of respecting your elders, but I don't feel as though not saying Mr. or Mrs. is somehow disrespectful, because to me, it's doing that then puts me in this position of feeling like I am lesser, because they're not going to do the same for me. You know, someone who's older than me is not going to then call me Mr. Latimer, Mr. David, something like that. It's not going to happen. So it, it just makes me feel like I am lesser. But, you know, I will always respect my elders. I will always respect people who are um, older and have more wisdom. But I don't feel as though I necessarily owe them that particular title if we are speaking in polite conversation. And just again, like I said last week, there is nuance to every argument. And there is a particular time and place to call people by certain names. Um, Sherelle's mom. In fact, I will always call her Miss Shanine because, one, it's what she prefers, and I'm totally fine with doing that. And second of all, that for her is the respectful way to refer to her. And I have no problem with that. And I will always call her Miss Shanine because that's what she prefers, and I have no problem respecting her in that way. But I don't believe it has to be automatic. And I don't believe that it's either I refer to them as Mr. and Mrs., or I don't. There is a middle ground where I can have some nuance, and I may or may not refer to them in that way, and that's okay. So last thing I wanted to talk about, speaking of colleges, um, the college board which runs the SATs just announced this week that they're going to be starting what's called the adversity score. Now basically the idea is SATs are run in such a way that you, you take these tests when you're in high school and it sort of all of these different subjects and all of these different parts of the test are narrowed down into one score. And that score, in many cases, dictates whether you are in or out at a particular university, depending on where you apply. Um, this new adversity score is designed to basically contextualize your score. So it's going to take into account uh, several different parts of or different aspects of the test taker's life and and their particular circumstances and their it's based on what they're calling the overall disadvantage level scored out of 100 so it's a basically they're they're adding up how disadvantaged are you or how how hard is it for you to succeed based on your situation and they have this adversity index that basically takes into account three major categories. There's the neighborhood environment, your family environment, and your high school environment. So what that means is for neighborhood, they talk about crime rate, poverty rate, housing values, and vacancy rate. So all of the things just about where you particularly live and how that might affect you. Uh, your family environment, what's your median income, your household, whether you're a single parent or two-parent household, education level, things like that. Uh, and then there's the high school environment, which is Free lunch rate, curriculum, uh, AP opportunity, where they are based on ranking in terms of other schools. They're they're studying the SAT scores of race as well here and, and sort of looking at the medians for or, or the averages for particular races and then looking at the overall averages. And the reason that they wanted to do this adversity score is to sort of even that playing field because it feels that. Sometimes you've got uh, and and you can see it mathematically the that um black and Hispanic students have scores under a thousand, whereas on average white and Asian American students have scores of eleven 1, hundred and twelve hundred. So there is this sort of this big gap there, and on average, they're wondering, could it possibly be because of their environment? And of course, most of that is going to be environment things, you know. If you didn't have the um, the income to be able to afford SAT prep courses and things like that, that's always been debated. I have mixed feelings about this adversity score. I think it's a I think it's a way to contextualize results and it's a way to make it so that way we can understand SAT scores better because I feel like one number is really unfair to judge a person. You know. Testing has become this thing that we sort of boil down everything about a particular student to one number, and this one number defines you, and this is who you are, it's how you are as a student, it's how you are as a person, and that's completely, it's nonsense, it's not true, but then you've got, on the other hand, for me at least, I worry that, I don't want to get too much into that side because I don't want to be, I, I don't want to say something wrong, but I worry that the adversity score will be used in such a way that those who are perceived as disadvantaged will get a leg up in an undeserved way. That their score is lower, but because their disadvantaged score is so high, they will get in. And then you have students that are lower disadvantaged score, but their SAT scores are a bit higher, you know, several hundred points higher potentially. Yet they are not looked at. They are not even considered or or they are passed on because we would rather have someone who is lower score, higher disadvantage because no one else will give them a shot, so we are going to give them a shot. I I don't know if that's going to be the case. I don't know, so I'm not going to speculate. I just worry that there's unintended consequences, uh, especially because these are scores that you will not get to see. Students will not get to see these scores. Only colleges will see these. So I worry that obviously some people know how disadvantaged they are. They know if they're in a single-parent household. They know what their median income is. They know if they're disadvantaged. But then someone like, you know, I'll just say it, someone like myself, okay, I've always had this problem of being in a middle-income household where... Uh, I feel disadvantaged, but on paper, I wouldn't be, okay? Because every time you apply for loans and every time you apply for assistance and things like that, they always look at the household income. Well, my parents are not paying back my student loans. I don't know if that's just a thing that all parents do and all households do, but mine don't. You know, I'm lucky because I had scholarships and things that ended up lowering my my loan amount, um, and I went to two years of community college first. But I'm still leaving with 15 grand in debt, but my parents are not paying that back. I'm paying that back monthly on my own with my own income. So why does my household income, what do, what my parents make, my dad and my mom, what does it matter what they make as to the the assistance and what I get in return? That doesn't seem fair. But of course, you know that that's a separate issue from the adversity score. I'm just saying, on paper, some people feel disadvantaged, and some people, in fact, are disadvantaged. But then, on the surface, on, if you were to write down all of the information, I don't look disadvantaged. And in some ways, I'm not. You know, some ways, I am, I am very um, advantaged because I had the resources to be able to study and the resources to be able to get those kinds of scholarships and things like that. But in the end, I won't get that kind of government assistance or the kind of loan payback or things like that because my parents make too much money, but I'm the one paying the loan back. So where's the fairness in that? But we'll see what happens with the adversity score. It's I feel like it's definitely gonna get implemented and I feel like it's gonna be used against some people, but used to also help others. So we'll see if that tips the scale at all. We'll see if anybody challenges it, but I don't know. And that's all for this edition of Millennially Speaking. I'm David Latimer, and be sure to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And if you like this podcast, share us with your friends. We're also on Instagram at millennially_underscore_speaking and on YouTube, millennially speaking. We'll be back next week.